Welcome dice rollers, mouse clickers, denzines, and delt dwellers of both Neverwinter Nights and Dungeons & Dragons. This is the first bonus episode of the Yinzer Sage. And today's topic will be, finally, the rise and fall of TSR. We're going to go over... There was so much online that... Note-wise, that I found, um, so I had to kind of pick and choose the couple articles that didn't really go into people's personal opinions. I'm looking more for factual things that actually happened, and hopefully by the end of this, I'll be able to explain to everyone why TSR stopped selling D&D, why Wizards of the Coast bought D&D. What happened? So here we go. First off, TSR Incorporated was an American game publishing company and the publishers of Dungeons & Dragons. But before we go into TSR, we need to really talk about the original organization that they kind of uh, based part of the name of TSR off of. The Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association, a group formed in February March of 1970. Members included Ter Gary Gaiax, uh, Terry and Rob Kunt, Kuntz, sorry, Jeff Perrin, Mike Reese, Leon Tucker, Don Kay, and Ernie Gaiax. Brian Bloom joined in the summer of 1973. When Gary and Don Kay... Uh, He, when, actually, let me restart that. When Gary could not find a publisher for D&D, a new type of game he and Dave Arneson were co-developing, Gaiax and Don Kay founded Tactical Studies Rules in October of 1973 to self-publish their products. However, immediate, needing immediate financing to bring their new game to market before several similar competing products were, products were released. Gaiax and Kay brought in Brian Bloom in December as a equal partner. Uh, so let's just back up for a second here. And we're going to start with Tactical Studies Rules. It was 473 between Gaiax and Kay, who together for $2,400 for startup costs uh, to formally publish and sell the rules of D&D, &D, um, which was a creation of... Gaiax with uh, Dave Arnson. Um, the first actual TSR release, however, was a miniature game called Cavaliers and Roundheads. Uh, it was They put that out so that they could start generating income for TSR. The partnership was subsequently joined by Brian Bloom and temporarily by Arnson. Bloom was admitted to the partnership to fund further publishing of D&D instead of waiting for Cavaliers and Roundheads to bring in enough revenue. In the original configuration of the partnership, Kay served as president, Bloom as vice, and Gaiax was editor. In January 1974, TSR, with Gaiax's basement as headquarters, produced 1,000 copies of D&D, selling them for $10 each and a set of dice for $350, which is where we discovered that the Loch Ness Monster needed $354 on South Park. Joking. That's a joke. Just... I like to put a little humor into my things, so hopefully somebody chuckled at that. Uh, 
Needless to say, the first print sold out in 10 months. In January of 75, they printed a second thousand copies of D&D, which took only another five or six months to sell out. In 74, they published Warriors of Mars, which was a miniature rules book set in the fantasy world of Barsoom, uh, originally imagined by Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, in a series of novels about John Carter of Mars, in which two guys paid homage in the preface of the first edition of D&D. However, they published that book without permission from or payment to the Burroughs estate and soon received a cease and, disorder, cease and desist order from the Burroughs estate. And Warriors was pulled from distribution. In 75, they published Bloom's Panzer Warfare, World War II-based miniature wargaming set of rules for use with uh, 1.25 or 285 scale micro armor. Uh, it, it's an, at its inception, TSR sold its products directly to customers, shipped to game stores and hobby stores, and wholesaled only to three distributors that were manufacturers of miniature figurines. In '75, they picked up one or two regular distributors. The next year, they were the TSR joined the Hobby Industry Association of America and began exhibiting at their annual trade show and began to establish a regular network of distributors. When Don Kay died of a heart attack on January 31st, his role was taken over by his wife Donna Kay, who remained responsible for account excuse me, accounting, shipping, and the records of the partnership through the summer. By the summer of 75, those duties became complex enough that Gaix himself became a full-time employee of the partnership in order to take him over from Donna Kay. Armson also entered the partnership in order to coordinate research and design with his circle in the Twin Cities. Uh, Blooming Gaiax, the remaining owners, incorporated a new company called TSR Hobbies Incorporated, with Bloom and his father Melvin owning the larger share. From the start, Gaiax served as president of TSR Hobbies and Bloom as vice president and secretary. Originally, TSR Hobbies was created as a separate company to market miniatures and games from several companies, an enterprise which was also connected to the opening of the Dungeon Hobby Shop in Lake Geneva. The dungeon would become the effective headquarters of the company, including the offices of Bloom and Gaiax. On September 26, 1975, the former assets of the partnership were transferred to TSR Hobbies Incorporated. TSR Hobbies subcontracted the printing and assembly work in October 1975, and the third printing of 2,000 copies of D&D sold out in five months. Tim Cask was hired in the autumn of 75 as a periodicals editor and as the company's first-time full first full-time employee. Uh, the first product that was published by TSR Hobbies was called Empire of the Petal Throne, followed by two supplements to D&D, Greyhawk and Blackmore. Also released in 75 was the board game Dungeon and the Wild West RPG Boot Hill. The company took $300,000 in revenues for the fiscal year of 76. They began hosting the Gen Con Game Fair in 76 and featured the first ever D&D Open Tournament that year. D&D supplements Eldritch Witch Wizardry and Gods, Demigods, and Heroes were released in 76, and the original D&D Basic set released in 77. Also in 77, TSR published the original Monster Manual, the first hardbound book ever published by a game company, and the first product in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons line. The next year, the Player's Handbook was published, followed by a series of six adventure modules that had previously only been used in tournaments. 
Also in 78, TSR Movies TSR Hobbies moved out of Gaiax's home and into downtown Lake Geneva above the Dungeon Hobby Shop. In 79, the DM's Guide was published and radio ads featuring Mordley the Wizard were broadcast. During this era, there were a number of competitors and unofficial supplements to D&D published, arguably in violation of TSR's copyright, which many D&D players used alongside the TSR books. Among these were the Arden Grimoire, the Manual of Arena, and variants such as Warlock and Tunnels and Trolls. TSR regarded these very warily, and in cases where they felt the trademarks were being misused, they issued cease and desist letters. More often than not, the legal posturing resulted in only slight changes to competitors' works, but caused significant animosity in the community. Gags granted exclusive rights to Game Workshop, Games Workshop to distribute TSR products in the United Kingdom. After meeting with Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson, Games Workshop printed some original material and also printed their own versions of various D&D and AD&D titles in order to avoid high import costs. When TSR could not reach an agreement with Game Workshop regarding a possible merger, they created a subsidiary operation in the UK called TSR Hobbies UK LTD in 1980. Gaix hired Don Turnbull to head up the operation and would expand into continental Europe during the 1980s. The British branch of the operation, TSR UK, published a series of modules, and the original Fiend Folio, TSR UK, has also produced Imagine Magazine for 31 issues. Uh, the first campaign setting for AD&D was The World of Greyhawk, introduced in 1980. Uh, Top Secret came out in 1980. Uh, a note within the written on TSR stationery about a fictitious assassination plot. Part of the playtesting of the new game brought the FBI to TSR's offices. In that same year, the Role-Playing Game Association was formed to promote quality role-playing and unite gamers around the country. In 1991, Incorporated Magazine listed TSR Hobbies as one of the 100 fastest-growing privately held companies in the United States. That same year, they moved their offices again to a former medical supply building with an attached warehouse. In 1992, or 1982, TSR Hobbies broke the $20 million mark in sales. Uh, in '82, they decided to terminate Grenadier Miniatures license and start, started producing their own miniatures, AD&D miniatures line, followed by a line of toys. Part of the licensing of the toy line went to LGN, also that year, they introduced two new role-playing games, Gangbusters and Star Frontiers. Exclusive distribution of the game was established in 22 countries, with the game being translated first into French, followed by many other languages including Danish, Finnish, German, Hebrew, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Norwegian, and Swedish. In 1982, an educational department was established to develop curriculum programs for reading, math, history, and problem solving, with the most successful program being the Endless Quest book series. Melvin Bloom's shares were related transferred to Kevin Bloom, with the board of directors consisting of Kevin Bloom and Brian Bloom plus Gaiax. Gaiax in later interviews described his position as primarily a figurehead president and CEO of the corporation, with Brian Bloom as president of creative affairs and Kevin Bloom as president of operations. As of 81, 1981, in that year, TSR Hobbies had revenues of $12.9 million and a payroll of 130. They sought diversification 
acquiring and starting several new business ventures. These included a needlecraft business, miniatures manufacturing, toy and gift ventures, and an entertainment division to pursue motion picture and television opportunities. The company also acquired the trademarks and copyrights of SPI and Amazing Stories magazine. <clears throat> In 1983, the company was split into four companies. TSR Incorporated, the primary successor, TSR International, TSR Ventures, and TSR Entertainment Incorporated. Gaix left for Hollywood to found TSR Entertainment Incorporated, later Dungeons & Dragons Incorporated Group, which attempted to license D&D products to movies and television executives. His work would eventually lead to only a single license for what better be what later became the Dungeons & Dragons cartoons, which most people remember having a unicorn named Uni and a little short ball guy in a red, uh, like, robe named Dungeon Master. Uh, there was also an evil guy on there named Venger. Um, I remember the little kid's name was Bobby. Um, I can't remember all the names of them. I, I, it was a long time ago when I saw it as a kid. But, uh... That series spawned more than 100 different licenses and led its time slot for two years. TSR Incorporated released the Dragonlance Saga in 1984 after two years of development, making TSR the number one publisher of fantasy and science fiction novels in the USA. Dragonlance consisted of an entirely new game world promoted both by a series of game supplements and a trilogy of novels written by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. The Dragons of Autumn Twilight, the first novel in the series, reached the top of the New York Times bestseller, encouraging TSR to launch a long series of paperback novels based on the various official settings for D&D. In 1984, they signed a license to publish Marvel superheroes, Indiana Jones, and the Conan role-playing games. Also in 1984, that's when I started playing, April 24th, 1984, was the actual first day I started playing. 1985, the Gen Con Game Fair moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, due to need for additional space. The Oriental Adventures hardback for the AD&D was released that year, becoming the biggest seller of 85. TSR introduced the All My Children game based on the ABC daytime drama, with more than 150,000 copies sold. And in 1987, they introduced the Dungeon Mag Adventures magazine, a bi-monthly magazine featuring only adventure scenarios for D&D. Hearing rumors that the Blooms were trying to sell TSR, Geiss returned from Hollywood and discovered the company was in bad financial shape despite healthy sales. Oh, sorry, my cat was attacking me. Geiss, who at that time owned only about 30% of the stock, requested that the board of directors remove the Blooms as a way to restore financial health to the company. The Blooms were forced to leave the company after being accused of misusing corporate funds and accumulating large debts in the pursuit of acquisitions such as latch-hook rug kits that were thought to be too broadly targeted. Within a year of departure of the Blooms, the company was forced to post a net loss of $1.5 resulting in layoffs of approximately 75% of the staff. Some of these staff members went on to form other prominent game companies such as Paysetter and Mayfair Games or to work with Coleco's game, video game division. However, in an act as many saw as retaliation, the Blooms sold their stock to Lorraine Williams. Geix tried to have the sale declared illegal. After that failed, he sold his remaining stock to Williams and used the capital to form New Infinity Productions. 
What I'm going to read now is an article I found called The Ambush at Sheridan Springs. This is probably the most detailed, actual, accurate account of what actually went down between that period of um, Gaiax coming back and finding out that they had everybody sold their shares to uh, Williams. In the fall of 85, he was the most famous and powerful figure in hobby gaming. He was the president and chief executive officer of TSR Incorporated, the company that produced it. He had personally directed development of the game for the last decade, most recently producing new titles for its Advanced Dungeons & Dragons line. Early in 85, he was the lead on Unearth Arcana, and they were putting the finishing touches in on Oriental Adventures in the fall. He had been featured in People Magazine and appeared on national television. His name and his game seemed inseparable. October 22nd was a Tuesday, and Gax was wrapping up another day at TSR Corporate Headquarters on Sheridan Springs Road in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. His last appointment was a board meeting just after the close of business with 1,371 shares of stock. He held controlling interest in the company and thus shared, chaired the board. The meeting started late. At quarter past five, five of the company's six directors were present. Two of the independent directors, James Huber and Wesley Summer, and then the three principal shareholders, Gaix, Brian Bloom, and Kevin Bloom. Gaix was surprised to find both of the Bloom brothers in attendance, though they held a substantial stake in the company as a family, nearly 1,000 shares total. They had lost their executive positions at TSR following reorganization of the previous year. The board proceeded to review the company's turbulent negotiations with the American National Bank before we Moving on to a more ostensible purpose of the meeting, a discussion regarding TSR's royalty payments to authors. In recent internal memo, sorry, in recent internal memos, Gaix had insisted that the company allow its employees, himself especially, to retain all copyrights, trademarks, and royalties for works authored rather than assigning them to TSR. In the eyes of the other directors, this was a violation of existing contracts. During the course of this discussion, Gaix mused that since it seemed the board would find it easier to afford him these privileges, if he were not an employee, perhaps he should just resign. It was, of course, preposterous for a majority shareholder to suggest their own resignation, but Gaix found the room coldly receptive to this course of action. The presence of the Blooms worried him. He turned to the board secretary, Willard Martins, to ask if his personal stake relative to the other shareholders had changed recently. At first, Martins replied that only that Lorraine Williams had exercised her option for 50 shares in TSR. Williams had joined the company in April as vice president of the administration. Her options alone could not endanger Gaix's majority. Have there been any other changes Gaix further required, or inquired? Martins only then volunteered. Brian Bloom exercised his options for 700 shares. Realization set in. Gary Gaix said simply, I see. What did Gaix see in that moment? He saw enough shares in play that he stood to lose control of TSR, a company he had founded and transformed into a global brand. But he surely also saw something even more dear at stake, that he might lose control of Dungeons & Dragons. Yet matters were never so black and white. Control of TSR was something that he possessed, but fleetingly in the decade-long history of the company. In fact, he had only decisively acquired controlling interest as of March of 1985, at a time of great upheaval in TSR's business. Previously, 
TSR followed a consensual governance model, one that the industry celebrated during TSR's ascent, but disparaged after the company's fortunes faltered. As Dungeons & Dragons took the world by storm, Gaix led virtue of his design talent and his extraordinary community presence, rather than the financial stake in the company. Control of Dungeons & Dragons depended on many contingencies of TSR founding. TSR Hobbies formally incorporated in Wisconsin Entity in July 75, but that was 18 months after the publications of D&D. Previously, there existed the partnership of the Tactical Studies Rules, which formed in October 73 with two principals, Gax and his friend Donald Kay. They lived box, blocks apart in Lake Geneva and were both members of a local wargaming group called the Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association, from which Tactical Studies Rules took its name. At the time the partnership was formed, he had not had a study job in nearly three years. He repaired shoes in his basement for substance income, but dedicated his creative energies to game rules, for which he received very little by the way of royalties but widespread acclaim in the hobby games community. Thus, Gaix was unable to make a capital investment in the Tactical Studies Rules Partnership. It was Kay who provided the initial 1000 This was sufficient to publish a single slim wargaming title, but not to cover their planned flagship product, the three-volume box set of D&D, authored by Gaix in conjunction with Twin Cities gamer Damon. Martinson. That required a more substantial investment. Gaix and Kay therefore admitted to the partnership another member of the Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association, Brian Bloom, who contributed a further 2000 The partnership lacked the means to employ any of its principals, however, so they worked on its administration after hours on a best effort basis. Bloom would later remark that he applied to join the partnership because it seemed like a fun way to spend weekends and afternoons. Kay served as president of the partnership, Bloom as vice president, and Gaix held the title of editor. When D&D first came to market in January of 74, no one thought to call it a role-playing game. They marketed it as a war game, a game of conflict simulation. The Legend of the Bok read Rules for Fantastic Medieval War Games Campaigns, a construction that's, that situated the game in a niche hobby market for such war games that had existed since the 1950s. It was largely through this leadership in the wargaming community that Gaix initially popularized the game, uh, which sold around 1,000 copies its first year in market. Though that may sound like a paltry figure by mainstream standards, it was promising enough for a wargaming title to warrant a second printing early in 75. Tragedy intervened when Kay died suddenly of a heart attack on January 31st, and I already mentioned how they brought Donna Kay in. Um, Gaix recognized that an absence of salary only level games could fuel the partnership. As a result, he committed TSR to a stark governing principle. He promised in a letter to David Magari, designer of the Dungeon Board game, dated March 6, 1975, we will never allow TSR to become a company which is run by any outside group. That is, we may take others in as partners eventually, but we will never seek any non-wargamer capitalization. Protecting control required a new corporate structure. Gaix and Bloom had planned the creation of a separate TSR Hobbies company to handle mail order sales and possibly a retail store in Lake Geneva. When they incorporated it, they decided to repurpose it to purpose the assets of the partnership and thereby relieve Donna Kay of, Donna Kay of her ties to get the gaming. 
In crafting the governance structure at TSR Hobbies, they were understandably preoccupied with the possibility that the major shareholder would die suddenly, and thus they borrowed much language accounting for this evidentially from the stock agreement of the company run by Bloom's father, Melvin, president of Wisconsin Tool and Stamping. The gist of the language was to guarantee that should any shareholder die or seek to divest themselves from the firm, TSR Hobbies would reserve the right of first refusal to buy back their stock. The original stock agreement executed by Gaix and Bloom on August 1st, 1975, awarded Gaix 150 shares of stock and Bloom 100. Thus, the company was initially structured. Gaix held controlling interest, but Gaix could not have intended for the stipulation to last long. TSR Hobbies required capital purchase the assets of their partnership. For that, it would need an investment. The first two stock circuits Certificates issued to Gaix and Bloom were stipulated in the August 1st agreement were given in consideration of our being a part of that corporation, as Gaix would later put it, not in exchange for money from either party. The next two stock certificates issued reflect a substantial investment in the company's future by the Bloom family. Certificate 3 was issued to Melvin Bloom on September 1st, 1975 for 200 shares of stock, which he purchased at the price of $100 each. Certificate number four was designated that Brian Bloom had sub simultaneously bought 140 shares at the same price. In total, total then, the Bloom family invested $34,000 in TSR Hobbies within the first month of its operation. These funds were crucial for the acquisition of the game products of the dissolving partnership, which TSR Hobbies formally purchased on September 26th, and furthermore for the development and publication of new titles. But the sum probably looks larger than it actually was, due to Bloom's one-third stake in the partnership. Sorry, my cat just jumped on me again. Some of this money must have effectively gone back into his family's pocket. The Bloom capital infusion immediately rendered Gaix a minority shareholder. With his 150 shares now, well below that of the Bloom family holdings of 440 shares, he would remain a minority shareholder for the next decade. Thus, although Gaix enjoyed fleeting control over TSR Hobbies in 75, it was only at a time that the company did not even own Dungeons & Dragons, but ownership did not translate into executive titles. Gaix retained the offices of president of TSR Hobbies despite the reversal of control. Excuse me. The steadily mounting popularity of D&D enabled them to bring Gaix and Bloom on board as salaried staff. Further new hires drawn from this gaming community include the immediate family of both Bloom and Gaix, assisted with advertising, creative design, artwork, shipping, and manufacturing. Employees were given the opportunity to purchase small amounts of equity, though most shareholders possessed less than 20 shares at the end of 75. Even Dungeons & Dragons co-creator Dave Arnson, who joined TSR around this time, only held about 30 shares. He was sidelined late in 76, although his famous... Resulting lawsuits against TSR endured his presence at board meetings. He had little practical influence over company direction. Gags and Bloom bolstered their own positions in the company as profits and advancement increased, mostly thanks to a preemptive right to purchase new shares pro rata, but also through various grants. Fatefully, in July 1976, TSR Hobbies issued both Gags and Bloom options to purchase up to 700 additional shares at the, a price of $100. The gradual accumulation, Gaix's stake rose to around a third of the company by late 1970, while Brian Broom roughly 
owned rough, always owned roughly 100 shares more than Gaix. His own holdings slid a few percentage points down from its peak over 40%. As Melvin acquired no further shares, his position declined precipitously from around a third to just under a tenth of TSR. But again, irrespective of ownership, it was clearly Gaix who ran the business. In 76, issue of the Strategic Review shows pictures of both Gaix and Bloom, the former identified as TSR's founder and later as TSR's second banana. Three, three years later in an interview, Gaix cast the, the situation more formally. I am the president of TSR and Brian Bloom is VP and secretary. By the end of 77, there were 1,933 shares of common stock outstanding from an authorized 5,000, and the governance of the company was effectively stable. Only 105 more shares would be issued in 78, and after that, the number of shares outstanding would increase by just 23 over the next seven years. Sometime in 78, the Bloom family position in TSR Hobbies diluted below a 50% stake. No single party would own a controlling interest in TSR again until 1985. As the 1970s wound to a close, TSR Hobby still valued its shares at 100 bucks. When William Nebling joined the company as vice president in 1979 in May, he was offered an option to purchase 500 shares of TSR Hobby's stock at 125 bucks each. But shortly thereafter, a turn of events would send TSR sales and valuation into the stratosphere, putting enormous pressure on the company's management. Up to the end of the 1970s, TSR Hobbies grew at a respectable but predictable rate. Gross sales from around 300,076 doubled the following year, thanks in no small part to the recently revised basic set of D&D edited by Eric Holmes. It was at this time the installments of the advanced D&D product line, a complete rewrite of that game, began to appear. While the Monster Manual in 1977 came out too late in that year to impact fiscal reporting, it was joined the following summer by the Player's Handbook in 78, and together they helped drive net sales in the 1978 near the million dollar mark. Failing a bit short of the doubling again, uh, the release of the DM's Guide in 79, 12 months later, completed the core advanced D&D product set and made the game available to public in attractive hardbound volumes suitable for display in booksellers. Moreover, TSR had begun to flood the market with inexpensive modules, prepackaged adventures that reduced the preparation needed to play. What catapulted the game into national mainstream, however, was an accident of history. In July 1979, a student named James Dallas Egbert III disappeared from a Michigan college. A private investigator hired to find him learned that Egbert played an obscure game called Dungeons & Dragons. The sleuth then developed and widely publicized a curious hypothesis that, believing the game to be real, Egbert was wandering the steam tunnels beneath the school in search of monsters and treasures. It transpired that this hunch was incorrect. Egbert had absconded to Louisiana for unrelated, unrelated reasons, but the media furor surrounding this sensational conjecture thrust D&D into a front page of newspapers and into popular imagination. The D&D... The Egbert incident is probably the best place to mark the beginning of the D&D fad, which lasted from mid-1979 into 1982. During this period of disparative sales growth, they expanded rapidly and developed the skills necessary 
to succeed beyond the confines of a niche hobby community. Neither Gax nor Bloom had any business or management education. Gax had not even graduated from high school. In early interviews, they frequently boasted that gaming and business required the same competencies. Gax even compared the rise of TSR through 1980 to a Dungeons & Dragons campaign, with it starting out as a low-level character sort of company, but gaining excellent experience to advance towards the really high-level game producers, such as Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers. TSR's accountant and fiscal reporting in this period were irregular and sometimes problematic, but even with considerable margin of uncertainty, the company's growth was unmistakable. TSR's gross sales stood around $2 million in 1979. By one internal account, sales the following year reached $16 million, a 5,233% increase over just five years before. It was the strength of this figure that Incorporated Magazine awarded TSR sixth place in the 1981 list of the 100 fastest-growing privately held companies. That eightfold leap in sales seems unlikely, however, as later TSR statements pegged the 1980 revenue at only half that, $8.7 million, a number that confirms far more better to the company's overall growth curve. But the lower figure still re- reflects quadrupling revenue and a solid business. The D&D Basic set alone was selling 12,000 copies a month, and TSR payroll had risen to 120. Their next annual financial return is complicated by a number of structural changes, including an abbreviated nine-month fiscal year, 1981, but sales continued to increase. An October 1981 report pegs sales for the previous quarter alone at around $6 million. The quarterly figure comes to us via the TSR internal newsletter Random Events in an article written by Kevin Bloom. Kevin had joined TSRVs at his older brother Brian's behest in late 76 to help mine finances. He also oversaw hiring in the following years as the company began recruiting outside of its immediate circle and friends and family. After holding the titles of controller and treasurer, Kevin joined Brian and Gaiax on TSR's board of directors as of November 4, 1980, shareholder meeting. Surely the Bloom's family stock holdings influenced that decision, and in September 81, at the height of TSR's boom, Melvin Bloom transferred his 200 shares of stock to Kevin. Previously, Kevin only held five shares. This was a controversial tracks action within TSR. William Leiblick argued that it should be blocked for violating the shareholder agreement, but over his objections, Kevin was issued a certificate. Then he became the third largest shareholder behind Gaiax and his brother, who then acted as chairman of the board. Kevin's presence on the board led to some confusion about the governance of TSR. An article in the March 1982 Random Events briefly outlined that TSR Hobbies had a president's office, which is held by three individuals, Gary, Brian, and Kevin. All decisions of the president's office or the board of directors are unanimous. Unanimous. They agree or no decision is made. All votes are equal. No two can be a majority. Those words were written by another member of the Bloom family, Doug Bloom. In the following issue of the newsletter, however, a front-page article by Gary Gaiax, accompanied by a foreboding portrait of him, qualifies as the previous issue's explanation of how our corporate operates as only basically correct. While conceding that TSR is managed by its directors and the three of us do operate it by consensus, he bluntly insists the decision-making at the senior executive level is not by consensus, however. The presidential office Gaiax is on top. The next office is Brian, the senior executive officer. Then comes Kevin, his chief operating officer. After reorganization and 
implemented in 1982, in July of 82, the pecking order was writ large in the org chart. The president of TSR Hobbies, Gax, has a direct reports the president of TSR Service Group, Kevin Bloom, and the president of TSR Fund Group, Brian Bloom. This short-lived arrangement is remembered by employees as the time as the year of three presidents. Yet ambi ambi ambiguity about control remained. The president of TSR himself reported to the board of directors, which then consisted of Gaix and two blooms. It was unclear where power truly lay, for probably even to the principals involved. Uh, during their boom years of 81 and 82, it thrived under its ambiguous management structure, rapidly adding, rapidly adding to staff and making prominent acquisitions. In the gaming space, it acquired the assets of Wargame Publisher Simulation Publications following a loan default. After a brief period where Kevin Bloom served as president of that company, TSR had also a strong periodicals business by that time, circulating of its house organ, The Dragon, exceeded by 100,000 by 1983. So it was unsurprising to see them purchase Amazing Stories, a semi-popular fictional magazine. A more curious acquisition was the Greenfield Needle Woman Company, a craft firm that produced needleworking products. Gaix at that time justified the purchase internally by explaining that we, we have been seeking likely acquisitions outside of gaming, and that crafts is a larger field than hobbies. TSR predicted that the needlework company would contribute about a fifth of its gross income moving forward. The interest in diversifying beyond the games business must have reflected worries about the potential for the continued growth of D&D. All of the TSR's projections for the following two years, however, suggested that they believed there was plenty of games market left to claim. In a January 1982 interview, Nibbling revealed that we are expecting sales to close $45 million this year. The same month, in an internal statement, Gag exploited this even further out. A a safe estimate for 1983 places TSR's growth rate at 150% of the preceding year, let's say $75 million, though he stressed that that volume could grow beyond that. Even in light of current revenue and these predictions, the board set the par value for TSR stock of 3000 per share, 30 times higher than the price Byron Bloom paid in 1975. With this amount of money and business expected, they understandably stacked up aggressively. They had felled 60 new positions in 81, bringing the total payroll up to 180. As of August of 82, nearly 40% of all employees have been hired in the last 12 months. In January of 83, he told the Wall Gaix told the Wall Street Journal that TSR had immediate plans to hire 100 and 150 more employees. By April, they comprised of a total of 312 workers. Stafford now sprawled across six buildings in Lake Geneva alone, to say nothing of a warehouse in New Jersey and licensing office in New York. In retrospect, one can only surmise that TSR's frantic preparations for success blinded the company's shifts in the market. A contemporary survey conducted by the industry gossip magazine, The Insider, showed that total consumer spending on hobby games in 1982 increased only 12.6% over the previous year, a level barely above the inflation rate of 11.3. If we grant accounting for the irregularity of the fiscal year, the TSR pulled in 14 to 18 million in 1981. Their revenue over the following 12 months grew quite modestly when compared to the prior year over doublings, increasing to only 21 to 22 million in 82. About half of the projected 45 million incorporated magazine 
which had earlier praised TSR's expansion, now advised that its recent revenues crept forward cautiously. More troubling still, the insider projected that sales of the basic set had declined 16% over the year and that advanced D&D book sales were down almost 25%. No doubt that partly reflected the lack of new AD&D title in 82, but also foretold that the D&D fad would someday come to an end. By June 83, it became clear the business was not growing as expected. TSR would report fiscal for that year of $26.7 million. Well, short of the predicted 75. April and May revenues especially alarmed the company's managers. The purchase of the Greenfield Needwoman had failed to deliver its promised returns, so TSR was forced to write up the acquisition and, as a consequence, to post its first loss. In need of liquidity, TSR secured a $4 million loan from the American National Bank in Chicago. Negotiating that, deal, negotiating that deal became Kevin Bloom's responsibility, though TSR now entered unfamiliar waters. For such a task, as Kevin put it at the time, I was the best there was in the company, but I wasn't the right person. Yet for all its worries, TSR kept hiring. 25 employees joined the company in June alone. Drastic measures would be required to align the business with the market. Therefore, on June 24th, TSR reorganized into four separate companies. TSR Incorporated, which retained all games, toys, manufacturing, and marketing. TSR Entertainment, which controlled television and motion picture properties. TSR Ventures, which comprised licensing and research. And TSR Worldwide, which formed an umbrella corporation for internal subsidizaries and sales. As it underwent this reorganization, TSR also began to shed workers, starting with an initial round of 40 cuts. The bank only agreed to its loan on the condition of a sizable staff reduction. While the four companies had effectively the same three-man board of directors, uh, Gaix with Brian and Kevin Bloom, where now Gaix now served as chairman rather than Brian, each had a designated president in charge. Brian became president of TSR Ventures. Internal messaging at the time stressed the superiority of appointing only one boss for each company over the uneasy triumvirate of TSR Hobbies. Since games fell under the scope of TSR Incorporated, one might well expect that Gygax would take that helm. Instead, that role went to Kevin. Gygax, for his part, became president of the TSR Incorporate or Entertainment Corporation, as the name of TSR's flagship property enjoyed far greater brand recognition than the company itself. This subsidiary was subsized. Uh, sorry, subsidiary was soon rechristened the Dungeons and Dragons Entertainment Corporation. Placing Gygax in charge of the media over game merits further scrutiny. TSR believed that its potential growth through television and film was large enough to warrant Gygax's undivided attention. By the fall of 82, he had already begun to delegate responsibility for the ongoing development of Dungeons and Dragons. Most of you are not aware soon I will retire from this position of sole authority regarding the D&D game system, he announced in September. Frank Menser has volunteered to assume a new trainee position where he will work directly with me. While Gygax published a steady, a steady stream of additions to D&D in his Sorcerer's Scroll column in Dragon that year, much of which would later populate Unearthed Arcana, the articles petered up by the summer of 83 as Gygax focused his energies elsewhere. It was long the works Gygax had revealed that the board was considered the formation of a new corporate division just to handle licensing and exploitation of our products in the entertainment media. As early as January 1982 issue of Random Events, Gygax's new company would pursue TSR's long-held goal-creating D&D feature film. 
The company pegged its hopes on a screenplay on a screenplay penned by veteran writer James Goldman. The Enterprise scored an early success with the September September 1983 premiere of a D&D cartoon produced by Marvel. Media drawing on TSR's intellectual property would also serve as both as a source of licensing revenue and as a further marketing tool to draw fans new fans to D&D. And what did running the game's business entail at this point? Kevin Bloom presided over TSR Incorporated, hopelessly overstaffed and confronted with a contracting market. As such, he oversaw several rounds of economist downsizing, cutting hundreds of employees in groups of 30 or 40 at a time. As aggressive as the reductions were, they did not satisfy TSR, TSR's creditors, who insisted on the addition of three outside directors at the board in 84, James Huber, Robert Kidden, and Wesley Summers. At the behest of the independents, Kevin Bloom removed himself from executive duties, as TSR's spokesman would put it, and Richard Konings became acting president and CFO, CEO of TSR as of December 1984. Konings implemented punishing salary deferments and wage reductions in the remaining staff effective December 10th in an effect to balance the company's teetering budget. In the coming year, sales of D&D were projected to fall another 20%. And thus, unsurprising, TSR pegged its hopes elsewhere in Hollywood, but the prospect of a Silver Scream debut for D&D remained tantalizing out of reach. In October 84, Gygax reported that in addition to the Goldman script, there was a treatment by Gygax and Flint Dill but no studio has optioned either. As he built media products, he also developed contacts who might potentially take a position in TSR. He now split his time between Lake Geneva and the Hollywood Hills, though he found travel wearisome and was grateful for the chances to spend most of his summer in 84 in his hometown. By early 85, he had lined up a few investors interested in a deeper partnership with TSR. Rumors swirled that TSR Public Relations staff announced that a Beverly Hills investment group had filed a letter of intent to acquire a major position in TSR Incorporated, though TSR concealed the identity of this bidder for the forming group. Uh, to satisfy these potential as investors, the TSR board abolished the preemptive right of Gygax and Bloom to purchase stock pro rata, thereby opening the door to an outside group containing gaining controlling interest. But abruptly by the end of March, TSR announced that instead of the company would be restructuring itself financially using current resources and that any negotiation with outside investment groups are void. This reflected the events of a board meeting on March 18, 1985, where Gaix announced that he had exercised his July 1976 option for 700 share shares of TSR Incorporated stock. He raised his total holdings to 1,371 shares, which fell just slightly below half of outstanding TSR shares, then numbering 2,761. But the 40 shares owned by Gaiax's son Ernie, when combined with his father's holdings, secured controlling interest by to 51.1% in TSR. Immediately, Gaiax pushed to nix the Foreman deal. According to the raw notes taken by the secretary at that meeting, he had found a path. He believed that he could keep control of TSR away from outsiders. By a vote on March 29, 1985, the board named Gaix president and chief executive officer of TSR, in addition to his current possession of, as chairman of the board. When he returned to the post, downsizing had left only 95 employees at TSR. There remained a lingering question of the Blooms and their ownership position. Though neither of them held an operational role at TSR, 
They remained on the board of the directors, and with a combined 990 shares of TSR stock, they could not be ignored. Since their removal, the board attempted to negotiate a clear severance agreement with them, but they made, they made acceptance of any such agreement contingent on the sale of their stock. Otherwise, they reasoned, they must remain active in the company to protect their substantial investment. At the same board meeting that Bodie Gygax into presidency, the board also agreed to purchase the Bloom stock, including Brian's unexercised option for 700 shares minus the strike price at the valuation of $340.87 per share for a total of $506,070.30. However, capital was scarce with NTSR, and their bank was reluctant to release a large sum at a time when creditors were urging the company to seek additional liquidity. At the end of the spring, TSR reportedly operated a deficit of 750000 Additionally, lenders behaved conservatively at the time, as the American financial industry suffered under the throes of savings and loans crisis, which toppled several prominent Midwest banks in 85. In a letter dated, in a letter to Gaix dated April 9th, the American National Bank judged such a transaction inappropriate for TSR given its financial condition, and consequently the bank will not consent to the buyback. At the April 16th board meeting, the board informed the Blooms that the bank had blocked the transaction. As a result, the Blooms once again expressed reluctance about signing a severance agreement with TSR. What happened next is a matter of some dispute. During a recess in the meeting, Gaix met, met with Kevin and Bloom privately. Kevin and Brian Bloom privately. According to the Blooms, they offered their shares to Gaix, who agreed to purchase them personally with his own funds. Gygax later refuted this claim, saying he merely agreed to help find a consortium of individuals willing and able to purchase Bloom-held shares at the price discussed, but insisted that no offer or promise was ever made. As the discussion happened behind closed doors, it is no simple matter to ascertain the truth either way. On May 6th, Brian and Kevin Bloom did execute a severance agreement with TSR. When neither Gygax nor TSR made any firm movement to acquire the position, they subsequently issued TSR a notice of intent to sell and offer to sell on July 22nd, which again declared their interest in selling their shares at 500 each, a price Gags deemed unreasonable. Kevin Bloom then sent a mail to TSR on August 25th, which stressed that their severance package was accepted based on E.G. Gags's offer to buy the Bloom stock on TSR's incorporated stead. He concludes the demand by demanding directly, when can we expect to receive E.G. Gaix's offer? At the Sheridan Springs board meeting on the evening of October 22, 1985, Gaix must have immediately recognized that the exercise of the Bloom option for 700 shares had diluted his own stake below 50% of the outstanding stock in the company. But who would control these newly issued stairs, or shares? Surely he also remembered receiving yet another notice of intent to sell from the Blooms on October 8th, but this one far more specific declaring their imminent intent to sell all but not less than all of their position at TSR Incorporated at 350 a share. As the events played out in real time, he had little opportunity to reflect. Wesley Summer then formally requested that Guy extended his resignation. No doubt, still grappling with his new circumstances, Guyx refused. Summer therefore proposed the following to the TSR board for a vote. Resolved that, in the best interests of the corporation, E. Gary Gygax will be terminated as 
President and Chief Executive Officer and Chairman in the TSR and Mr. Geis will negotiate and seek to enter into agreement whereby Mr. Geis would continue to do creative work and the company continue to utilize the creative talent. This last clause no doubt created related to the royalty issue previously under discussion. James Huber seconded the motion. The motion passed with three directors in favor, one opposed, and one abstaining. While the stunning turn of events might seem momentous enough for one meeting, the board then turned its attention to the newly vacated, created vacancies in TSR's senior management. Immediately, the Blooms put forward Summer to succeed Gaix as chairman of the board. That passed easily, but then Summer advanced another more surprising proposition, that Lorraine Williams should replace Gaix as president and CEO of TSR. Blindsided, Gaix pushed back against this proposal. Williams had only worked at TSR for six months, had no background in games, but Summer championed Williams on the grounds that she had previously had acted in, as president in Gaix's absence. She would transition into the role with least disruption to the company. Gaix counterproposed bestowing the position on Willard Martins, who, in addition to acting as secretary for the board, was a finance vice president of TSR, but Martins declined, ostensibly due to his other responsibilities. After a short discussion, the board approved the motion to appoint Lorraine Williams president and CEO, overriding Gaix's strenuous objections. But Gaix probably would not have bothered to contest that appointment he understood the true situation. Unbeknownst to him, everyone else was in the room was privy to a piece of critical information that he lacked. Gaix had missed the warning signs. He overlooked how immediately prior to the board meeting, several of the other directors, including Summer, Huber, and Kevin Bloom, had congregated in Williams' office. In that private conference, these parties agreed not to reveal the extent of the changes in shareholder positions to Gaix and swore Martins into secrecy as well. What they knew that was just one day before TSR ordered issued stock certificate 107 to Williams for 1,690 shares. Williams was now the largest shareholder. Those 1,690 shares represented the entire holdings of the Bloom family, the 990 they previously held prior to October, plus the 700 they just exercised. In fact, the funds for that exercise came directly from Williams in the form of a down payment of 70000 on the total purchase, exactly enough money to exercise the 700 shares and $100 each. The Blooms and Williams had agreed to this exchange weeks ago on October 8th. The transaction valued TSR shares at 350 which required Williams to pay the Blooms a total of 591500 for their position in TSR. Given that neither Gaix personally nor TSR could raise the capital to purchase the Bloom family stock, how was Williams a new hire in the position to do so? The answer is that Williams came from money and that her hiring was actually contingent on her investment in the company in several respects. Gaix had first met her through her brother Flint Dill, who was working with Gaix on several projects on the Dungeons & Dragons Entertainment Corporation in L.A. Their grandfather, John F. Dill, published the original Buck Rogers comics, and the Dill family owned the rights to the character and controlled a trust collecting the resulting royalties. Thus, before Gaix invited Williams to join TSR as vice president, he had a number of discussions with her around February of 85 about investing in the company, including a proposal to acquire TSR stock valued at $150,000. Her offer letter, dated April 1, 1985, includes several stipulations relating to the investment. 
For example, William's employment agreement deferred a third of her salary of $90,000 a year into stock purchases. It furthermore required her to immediately purchase 50000 of TSR stock upon accepting the agreement and to buy a further $100,000 worth of stock in the 1986 calendar year. Given TSR's precarious financial situation, this represented a significant cash infusion, but also a substantial risk to Williams as an investor. Gaix writes in the offer letter of her commitment to TSR is evidenced by her determination to acquire a substantial holding in the corporation. The amount in question fell short of a controlling instance. Interest. Williams, after all, was not a gamer, and Gaix had to be cautious about outsider control. Gaix made hiring Williams a high priority, considering the board voted him president and CEO on a Friday afternoon in March 1985, and her letter, her offer letter dates to the following Monday. Gaix believed at the time that she would make an excellent addition to the board of directors. The board granted her an option to purchase 50 shares at 300. She would quietly exercise those on October 16th, a small but crucial addition to her holdings in advance of the October 22nd meeting. Why did Williams seek control of TSR? Shortly after she came on board back in April, the relationship began between her and Gaix began to sour. The financial situation of the company began continued to deteriorate, and Williams did not approve of the company's handling of the blooms. If she were going to invest further in that, she would have to empower her to make real changes in the way the company was operating. Therefore, in October 85, she saw no need to give Gaix any advance notice of her deal with the blooms. Gaix and were not Gaix and I were not talking very much during the time because we had very fundamental differences, she remarked. Furthermore, the informing Gaix that she intended to purchase the Bloom family shares would be, as she put it, an invitation for him to get in and just try to screw it up and once again, and to once again try and thwart the ability of the Blooms to sell their stock and to get out and to go about their lives. So on October 22nd, Gary Gaix walked into an ambush. Ignorant of Williams' newfound stake in TSR, he could only watch in amazement as the board stripped him of his job and appointed Williams his successor. As a final action of the meeting, the board moved to grant Gaix a severance package consistent with, with what has been done in the past, presumably a reference to the package extended to the Blooms. Kevin Bloom seconded the motion. The severance package was approved by the board and the meeting adjourned at the quarter of seven. In only 90 minutes, Gaix watched control of TSR Transfer to a non-gamer. In the weeks that followed, Gax took forceful but ultimately futile steps to undo the damage, attempting a bit of retroactive continuity, as gamers would say. His most surprising move was sending Brian Bloom an unsolicited cashier's check for $113,750 on November 5th, a 50% down payment to secure 650 of their shares. This sum would restore control of Gax of TSR to Gaix by a comfortable margin, but from the moment the Blooms had signed their agreement with Williams on October 8th, their shares resided in escrow, so Brian was in no position to accept an offer. So since Gaix, the company material invoked the conditions of a shareholder agreement intended to prevent outside parties from seizing control, the matter was destined for the courts. The resuming legal battle stretched into the second half of 1986. The court reviewed TSR's 1985 upheavals and concluded that the Blooms had satisfied their obligations of the shareholder agreement by providing TSR and Gaix personally with ample notice of their intention to sell, as well as numerous opportunities to purchase their shares. 
When neither stepped forward to buy, the balloons were free to sell to an outsider. The court also considered the question of whether or not Gygax had promised to buy the Bloom family position on April 16th and finally ruled the basis of testimony from the independent board members that Gygax had agreed to buy their stock and that Blooms and Gygax reported to that commitment the other directors. The court upheld the sale to Williams. Faced with the prospect of holding minority stake in TSR run by Williams, Gygax elected to walk away from a company resigning all positions in October 1986. As he put a farewell note to the Dragon, the shape and direction of the Dungeons & Dragons game system or that of the A&D&D game system are now entirely in the hands of others. Although he no longer controlled Dungeons & Dragons, his name had remained intimately connected with the game ever since. Gygax tried his hand at many other ventures, but for the rest of his life, he shared much of his time with the many people whose lives had been transformed by D&D. While the vagaries of business can strip fortune from an inventor, fame is less fickle commodity and Gaius's fame will endure as long as the game. And that was written by, I will put a link on my page, uh, John Peterson wrote that. I will link that. And that was the the article called The Ambush at Sheridan Springs. Um, back to TSR. Once Williams owned stock of it, once Williams owned it, uh, see, she was a financial planner who saw potential for rebuilding the debt plague company into a highly profitable one. However, she was disdainful of the gaming field, viewing herself as superior to gamers. They released the Forgotten Realm campaign setting in 87. That year, a small team of designers began to work on the second edition of the game. In 88, they released a Rocking and Bullwinkle RPG complete with a spinner and hand puppets. They also, that same year, released a war game based on Tom Clancy's novel The Hunt for Red October, which became one of the biggest selling war games of all time. In 89, the second edition, D&D, uh, D&D second edition was released with a new uh, DM's Guide, Player's Handbook, the first three volumes of the new Monstrous Compendium, the Complete Fighter Handbook, the Complete Thieves Handbook, a new campaign setting, Spelljammer, all released the same year. Under Williams' direction, TSR solidified its expansion into other fields, such as magazines, paperback fiction, comic books. Through her family, she personally held the rights to the Buck Rogers license and encouraged them to produce Buck Rogers games and novels. They ended up publishing a board game and a role-playing game, the letter based on the second edition rules. In 1990, the Ravenloft setting was released. Um, the West Coast Division of TSR was open to develop various entertainment projects, including a series of science fiction, horror, and action-adventure comic books. Uh, excuse me. In 1991, they released the Dark Sun campaign. TSR also released the first of three annual sets of collector cards in 91. In 92, they released Alquadim. Their first hardcover novel, Legacy, by R.H. Salvatore, was published that year and climbed to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. In 92, the game, Gen Con Game Fair broke all previous attendance records. Uh, with more than 18,000 people. 
and 93 Dragon Strike Entertainment product were re released as a new uh, approach to recruiting new players, including a 30-minute video which explains the concept of role-playing. 94 saw the release of the Planescape campaign setting. Uh, in 94, they also signed an agreement with Sweet Pea Entertainment for D&D movie rights. By 95, they had fallen behind both Games Workshop and Wizards of the Coast in sales volume. Seeing the profits being generated by Wizards of the Coast with their collectible card game, Magic the Gathering, they attempted to enter that market in 95 in a novel way with Dragon Dice, similar to a collectible card game. Each player started with a random assortment of basic dice and would improve their assortment by purchasing booster packs of more powerful dice. In addition to that, they also published 12 hardcore novel, hardcover novels in 96, despite a previous history of publishing only one or two per year. Sales of Dragon Dice, though the games industry started strongly, so TSR quickly produced several expansion packs. They also tried to aggressively market Dragon Dice in mass market bookstores through Random House. However, it did not catch on through the book trade, and it ended up the 12 hardcore novels as well. Just all the sales of that stuff were poor. By 1996, TSR was experiencing numerous problems, as outlined by Shannon. Applecline. CCGs were continuing to shrink the RPG our industry. Uh, distributors were going out of business. TSR had unbalanced all their AD&D games through a series of lucrative supplements that ultimately hurt the long-time viability of the game. Meanwhile, they had developed so many settings, many of them popular and well-received, that they were both cannibalizing their only sales and discouraging players from picking up settings that might be gone in a few years. They may have been cannibalizing their sales through excessive production of books and supplements, too. David D. Walt, on his book of Dice and Men, adds that Spellfire and Dragon Dice were both expensive to produce and neither sold very well. Despite total sales of $40 million, TSR ended 1996 with a few cash reserves. When Random House returned an unexpectedly high percentage of unsold stock, including the year's inventory of unsold novels and sets of dragon dice, and charged a fee of several million dollars, TSR found itself in a cash crunch. With no cash, they were unable to pay their printing and shipping bills, and the logistic company that handled their pre-pressed printing and warehousing and shipping refused to do any more work. Since the logistics company had the production plates for key products, such as the core D&D books, this means there was no means of printing or shipping core products to generate income or short-term or or secure short-term financing. Despite high sales, the company was deep in debt and not profitable in large in large part due to returns. Thirty staff members were laid off in December '96, and other staff left over disagreements about how the crisis was handled, including James M. Ward. In large part due to the need to refund Random House, they entered 97 with over $30 million in debt. TSR was threatened by lawsuits due to unpaid freelancers and missing royalties, but TSR made enough money from products already on shelves to pay remaining staff through the first half of 97. With no viable financial plan for TSR's son, or with no viable financial plan for TSR survival, Lorraine Williams sold the company to Wizards of the Coast in 1997. Before the corporate offices in Lake Geneva were closed, some TSR employees accepted the offer of transferring to Wizards of the Coast offices in Washington. Wizards of the Coast continued to use the TSR name for D&D products for three years until the third edition of D&D was released under in 2000 
under the Wizard of the Coast logo. In 1999, Wizard of the Coast itself was purchased by Hasbro. In 2002, Gen Con was sold to Peter Atkinson. A new TSR was founded by Jason Elliott, who founded the Roll for Initiative podcast. Elliott found that the TSR trademark had expired in 2004, so he registered it in 2011. He then came up with an idea to launch a new company with assistance from early TSR D&D contributors, including Luke and Ernie Gaiax, sons of the deceased D&D co-creator Gary, and Tim Kask, forder editor of the Dragon Magazine. Their first product, Gaiax Magazine, announced along with the TSR company revival in December 2012. Um, there's one more piece of news that I wanted to relate about this situation. On, well, uh, 22 hours ago, as of 7-15-2020, uh, Ernest, Gygax, Ernest Gary Gygax Jr. posted this uh, announcement. The Mecca role-playing games... R.I.P. 723 William Street, the original dungeon hobby shop, has been reincarnated. Work started in July, and gaming was added on the fourth day. Now, thanks to Justin Lanasa, a museum and gaming will be happening again 40 years after the dungeon moved. Um, you can pay $5 to get a tour, or you can buy a membership fee for life. Um... And they're going to be having uh, games out of there, uh, which to me was outstanding. Um, you know, that gives old gamers like me a chance to go out that way and actually meet some of these guys, you know, who were there. Um, but needless to say, uh, that in and of itself was the rise and fall of TSR. And as we know, Wizards of the Coast picked up the line, uh, and they, you know, kept going with it. Uh, they're now into the fifth edition of the game, and uh, I've heard rumors that they're possibly working on a sixth edition. I'm not sure, but with that said, uh, this thing has ran a little over an hour, and I think this would be a good point to stop with this. As the next episode, episode 8, is going to be a uh, dual uh, episode with... I'm going to do the actual origins of the D&D game and go into its actual history and stuff outside of the TSR company. Like, not, I'm not going to talk about the company itself. I'm going to talk more about the game and who helped create what in that game. And I'm also going to talk about uh, as much as the origins of Neverwinter Nights that I can find. Um, there's not as many articles about it as I liked, but I'm, I'm still finding snippets and pieces of information that I didn't know. There's a few snippets involving Neverwinter that uh, I don't think anybody really knew. Um, I know years ago the one I was told about and... I would like to relate that as well on that next episode. But with that said, I would like to thank, thank everyone for listening to this episode.
Um, firstly, I'd like to apologize for the couple moments in there where I got slightly emotional. Um, this is just a very near and dear subject to my heart. You know, I grew up on this. You know, D&D is the one thing that I can honestly say and equate besides my grandparents that kept me alive. Um, it was the one thing that kept me going all the years during my alcohol drink problem. And uh, subsequently, my giving up on life before the age of 30. Um, you know, obviously, I didn't give up because I'm 46 now and I'm still here. But uh, thank you guys again. Um, if you have an opportunity, hit like on the Inger Sage Facebook page. Uh, that's how I'm going to determine the next bonus episode. If I can get 25 people to like the Inzer Sage Facebook page, I will produce a second episode and we'll let you guys vote on it. Um, you know, to see what you guys want me to do. Um, I'm always open to talking about other game systems or other companies that I, uh, you know, I've dealt with as far as like games. Um, I don't mean like I've, I haven't dealt with any of these companies, but, you know, different games I played. Um, there are a couple games that I just won't talk about because, A, I don't like the game. I don't like the setting. Uh, one of them is the Warhammer 40,000 series. I don't, I'm not a fan of it. I just don't like the storyline behind it. There's things in it that make me kind of question other things and I would just prefer to not talk about that. I'm sure there are other podcasts out there that will. I'm going to try and shy away from that. Um, and also is, you know, there, the other page on Facebook is the, uh, never one nights community news podcast, which this is the same thing. It's just under the name of the ends sage. Uh, but, Needless to say, like I said, episode 8 will be coming out shortly here. And I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope everybody got some type of information they did not know. Um, and as always, I'm more than willing to talk about, like I'd love to do an episode just on Gary. I would love to do one on Dave Arnson. I, any of those guys, I would be more than willing to do an episode just on all the individual people that, you know, were part of TSR or that were part of the gaming industry, you know, back in the day or even up till now, uh, you know, some of the newer guys that are in the industry may not have as much information out there about them. So what I might have to do is take a few of them and combine them into one. But if, you know, I'll do whatever type of episodes for bonus episodes you guys want. So with that said, I'd like to thank everyone for listening and let, let's, uh, you know, I'll keep gaming, let the dice fall as they may, and uh, we'll talk to everyone later. Peace out.